Hi, everybody. This is Gary Lewis of Gary Lewis and the Playboys, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Phil Fang Volk. He was an original member of Paul Revere and the Raiders, one of the great American bands of the 1960s. Not only did they have a bunch of hits, but they appeared regularly on the TV show Where the Action Is, wearing their Revolutionary War outfits. You could not forget them. Fang was the bassist in the band, along with teen heartthrob Mark Lindsay on vocals and leader Paul Revere on the keyboards. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Fang and I are going to do a song fest. We're going to play a handful of those great Revere hits, and we're going to talk about them. You're going to get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that in every episode, I feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make the song relevant somehow. And in this instance, my featured song is The Fall of Winter. It's the single that I released last year featuring my co-writer, Jim Peterick, who also wrote Vehicle for the Ides of March and Eye of the Tiger for Survivor. The song has a 60s flavor, the same as all those great hits by Paul Revere and the Raiders. So, Fang, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, and good night. (laughs) Oh, are we still on? (laughs) You're still on, baby. I'm not going to let you off that easily. (laughs) That was such a long intro. I had to go get a cup of coffee. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, I got to build you up for the audience, okay? It was nice. I... I appreciate all those kind words. Thank you. You All right. I always like to start with something a little bit obscure, and I'm reading about you guys, and I see that there was a little bit of a battle about the song Louie Louie, okay, whether you guys or the Kingsmen recorded that great song first. So I want to hear it right from the horse's mouth. What's the answer? Okay. Here's the true story. I hope people are listening. But some people will not agree with me, but here's how it happened. The Raiders were the most popular group in the Northwest, and there was other big groups like the Sonics and the Whalers and the Kingsmen. But the Kingsmen came after the Raiders, and the Kingsmen, members of the Kingsmen, used to come to our dances in Portland, you know, at the D Street Corral or wherever we were playing, and they'd watch and listen. And they saw that every time we played Louie Louie at the dance, that the crowd wanted to hear it again somewhere in the night. So we would sometimes play it twice in one night because the kids loved that song for some reason. So Paul, being the businessman that he is, he said, we should record Louie Louie, even though it's a simple kind of a nothing song, but because uh, we had such a good groove on it and it, it, it kids love to dance to it. With, Paul, Paul had a pretty good sense of what was popular. 
So uh, we went into the studio right there in Portland and uh, recorded it. And that very same week, the Kingsmen went into that same studio and recorded it. And we both released it at the same time. Did you know that each other were recording and releasing at the same time, or was that a coincidence? We we found out about it later. It was a coincidence, but the Kingsmen were always checking us out and following our career and our things that we did, and they they tried to do things like we did. So they did songs similar to our songs, like we did Big Boy Pete. Well, they did Jolly Green Giant, you know. We, we did money, they did money. We did Louie Louie, they did Louie Louie. It's just that, you know, a lot of the groups up in the Northwest kind of kept track of each other and tried to emulate the better qualities of the groups, if you know what I'm talking about. So because the Raiders were, were kind of like the frontliners and the leaders, we were kind of leading the pack, uh, the Kingsmen took uh, their cues from us. I'm not bragging about that. That's just the way history is. And so we both released the record and it got a lot of airplay right away, but the Raiders got most of the airplay. The Kingsman version wasn't nearly as popular as the Raiders version up in the Northwest because the kids had heard our version at the dances. And when they heard it on the radio, they went nuts and they requested it. And so we had the local regional hit uh, and, and we, we outsold uh, the Kingsman 10 to one in the Northwest, 45s, right? Remember those 45s? Yep, the ones with the hole in the middle. And so it turns out, and this is really, really weird, the Kingsmen were not getting the hit record with it. And the Raiders had great success with it up in the Northwest, but it had to have a national breakout somewhere to be in the national charts. So because we sold about 300,000 copies of it in the Northwest, we got some chart action. But the Kingsman uh, version went back east, and somehow the FCC or somebody who regulates uh, radio uh, cleanness or, or radio, uh, what's that word? The, that I word? know what you're talking about. You're saying, you know, you, can, you can't say certain things. You had things some impolite it. words in your version. Is that what you're saying? Well, actually, a report went out that there was nasty lyrics in, in the Kingsman's version, and it was banned from certain stations. As soon as the kids heard that, guess what they did? They went out and bought the dang record to listen to it forward and backward to try to see see if they could hear the dirty lyrics. 
You know, the great thing about that version of the song is that you're right. You didn't understand anything that they were saying. Well, the guy had braces on, uh, Jack Ely, right? He was wearing braces and he was kind of mushy. And it, it, it was a great recording. But the irony of this is that the dirty lyrics were on the Raiders version. Because Mark Lindsay always threw some stuff in that was a little bit edgy or naughty. And, you know, if you sang it a certain way, you couldn't quite hear it unless you really listened carefully. But the dirty lyrics are on the Raiders. Well, anyway, once the kids heard about the dirty lyrics on Louie Louie, on the Kingsman's version, they all went on and bought it. And that created a chart situation to where it went straight up the charts. I think 1963, right? Yep, exactly. And it was listed as number one in Billboard and Cashbox. Those are the national magazines that charted music, uh, you know, hits. Well, anyway, Billboard only listed the Kingsman, but Cashbox listed the Kingsman and Paul Revere and the Raiders as having the number one hit with Louie Louie. Because we had sold so many copies in the Northwest, that became a regional breakout. And the breakout for the Kingsman happened on the East Coast. So, you know, it just filled the country. And we were both listed on the chart with as number one. All right. We're going to give you both credit then. But, you know, there's nothing better for anything in the arts than to get banned. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. As soon as they use that word, everybody flocks to it, whether it's a movie or it's a song or anything else. Or the lead singer doing something dirty on stage like Jim Morrison of The Doors. I mean, everybody wanted to see the doors, right? <laughs> That's right. After that, you can't beat it. No, I mean, a little controversy cannot hurt. And and believe you me, the Raiders created a lot of controversy in the Northwest because we had a reputation of not only being a hardworking uh, rock band, but, you know, some naughtiness and some sexy stuff. And Mark Lindsay was always doing things uh, with the songs and the lyrics and and the crowd, the kids loved it, you know. Now, at that time, were you wearing all the Revolutionary War uniforms, or did that come about later? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So that that was your shtick right from the beginning, huh? Well, at the beginning, when, when Paul Revere got signed to uh, Gardena Records, his band was called the Downbeats. And he recorded some piano solos, which which hits the charts. But before they released it, the guy at Gardena Records says, your name is Paul Revere? And he says, yeah. He says, why don't you take advantage of that? That's a great name. You should, the downbeat sounds like a jazz group. He says, why don't you call yourself like Paul Revere and the Night Riders? And Paul said, wait, whoa, whoa, I, I don't like that name, but let me think about it. So he thought about it, and he thought about the Oakland Raiders, who were the baddest football team in the league. They, were the, they had a reputation of being really, you know, raunchy and bad, and, you know, they had a reputation. So Paul said, Paul says to the guy at Gardena, I want to call it Paul Revere and the Raiders because Oakland Raiders are the baddest team in football, and and the Raiders now, Paul Revere and the Raiders are going to be a badass rockers, you know. And so he he liked that. He liked that sound, Paul Revere and the Raiders. It worked. Oh, my God, did it work, you know. I mean, we had 24 charted hits think about that yeah from 1960 to 1975 24 there's very few rock bands that have that many hits 
Yeah, you guys were at the top. All right, I want to hear about that whole little segment where you went on to where the action is and some of the other shows, because that really puts you guys into orbit. Oh, yeah. And this is a good story. And people say, Phil, why don't you write a stinking book? You got so many great stories from those times. So here is Dick Clark touring the nation with his thing called The Caravan of Stars with Connie Francis, Bobby Rydell, Fabian, Frankie Avalon. And they're doing huge business all around the country until they come to Portland, Oregon. They come to Portland, Oregon with his Caravan of Stars and the show's ready to begin. And, and Dick Clark looks out the curtain out to the audience. It's only half a house. And he, go, he looks at the stage manager and says, hey, where's all the kids tonight? He says, oh, oh, they're, they're all at the D Street Corral. He says, what the heck is that? He says, oh, it's a big dance hall, and the most popular band in the area is playing there tonight. He says, who is that? He says, they're called Paul Revere and the Raiders. And he says, well, I got to see that. So Dick Clark actually went to the D Street Corral, and he sees the place is overpacked you know, just to the rafters. Place was packed. The band was the Raiders on stage, sweating and working and getting the crowd is cheering. And he realizes these guys are hot stuff. And then he sees a guy standing in the foyer with a tie on and a suit because uh, there was everybody else was kids wearing regular clothes, right? So this guy with a tie on looked kind of like a businessman. So he walked up to him, said, hi, I'm Dick Clark. He says, no, I know. And I'm Roger Hart. Roger Hart was the manager of Paul Revere and the Raiders. And he says, your band, I want your band for my new TV show called Where the Action Is. We're going to film the pilot in a couple of months down in Hollywood. And I want that this band to be on my pilot because they're fantastic. And so, you know, the, we, uh, two weeks later, three weeks later, we're down in Hollywood on the beach at Malibu and up at the mountain in uh in big bear mountain snow summit lodge and we had you know the supremes with us we had uh bobby freeman uh we had jan and dean oh we had all kinds of famous acts that already had good recording uh, reputations you know with having hit records except for the raiders but when the raiders performed we knew uh, dick clark knew this band's going to be famous because we did all our choreography and shtick and worked hard and and he loved it. And at first, on the first 13 weeks of the show, when it did come out, we got just scale, union scale for the TV. But because they got so many fan letters, Roger Hart was able to go back into Dick Clark's office and renegotiate the contract because we were getting all the fan mail. You guys were the stars of that show. So far as I believe. It became our vehicle, you know, talking about vehicle. You're my vehicle, baby. I'll take you anywhere you want to go. So uh, so that became the the the, the most uh what what's the word? That propelled you. I mean, you it couldn't get more publicity yeah. than to be on that show at that time, the mid-sixties. I mean, you had, you know, the Ed Sullivan show in New York, but that was a Sunday night thing. It yeah. was for adults as much as it was for kids. But where the action is in Hullabaloo, those were the two shows that all the kids watched. Oh, yeah. But, you know, Hullabaloo was only on a one time a week. But where the action is came on five days a week. And the kids would run home from school and turn it on 
and watch us perform. So when we recorded and we released a single, we could do that single on the show that one day and the entire nation would hear it. And you can't believe how quick our songs hit the radio stations because it had that kind of uh, publicity being on Dick Clark's Worthy Action. It was a it was a beautiful place. That's how you got the 20-something hits. Okay, good for you. Oh, yeah, we got to launch our hits there, and the whole nation would hear it all at the same time. It was wow. it was very fortuitous. Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah, you bet. It was a great, great thing to happen. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States. So I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth. And I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads, ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience, and of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dreams. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode. And the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. All right. You know what? We're teasing everybody. I want to get to some of the songs here so that everybody can hear them. And if they're of a certain age, they can remember them. This is the song fest portion that I always love to do with my musical guests. So the first one we're playing is a little bit of Hungry, which I love. Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, you picked the right song to start off with because Hungry is my bass solo to the whole dang song. (laughs) You can't believe how this thing got put together. We, We got this song from Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who wrote Kicks for us. And we were looking for a follow-up to Kicks, 
And Tommy Boyce brought us a song called I'm Not Your Stepping Stone. Yep. And we recorded it. And we thought, okay, this will be the follow-up to Kicks. I'm Not Your Stepping Stone. Because we had a pretty good version. This was summer of 66, okay? So Terry gets the song from Barry Mann and Cynthia Will, who wrote Kicks. He, he got hungry. And he listened to Hungry. And he says, oh, we got to record this. We got in the studio. And we sat around the piano making an arrangement. Because the demo they sent us was just the song. And it sounded like it could be like another hit like Kicks. But he wanted something good. He wanted something tricky in it. So on Kicks, he had the guitar go da 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 da. And then he had the bass do a counterline boom, 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 boom. And that was the hook. So now he knew he had to have another bass hook. And he he said, Phil, what can you come up with uh, on the on the thing? So I actually played around with it, and I came up with a boom, 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 you know. And he said, love it. That was the song I love it. We're going to have that play through the whole dang song, except for the chorus, you know. And the chorus would be like kicks, just straight fours. But but the the bass part is the thing that's featured. And then when the chorus comes to a stop, he lets me play that line at double time. Do 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 do. And he said, "Oh, that's perfect." You know. And so the thing that's so neat for me, which was so fulfilling to me, is that fifty years later, Quentin Tarantino puts out a movie last year called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right, uh-huh. and it features "Hungry" and "Good Thing" and a couple other uh, later Raider tunes, but the two that I run, "Hungry" and "Good Thing." But while while it's playing, you know, did you see the movie? I did. Yes. You know, and it's about Sharon Tate. She's dancing to it yep. in her bedroom, and Brad Pitt is on the roof on, next door fixing the antenna, and she's inside her room dancing to "Hungry." And there's no dialogue. And when it comes to that bass solo, the whole theater is resounding with boo do 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 I'm thinking, yeah. You got your Hollywood minute there. Indication. Hey, listen, I want to go to the first one that you mentioned, Kicks, okay? Because what I remember about Kicks was you guys did some choreography along with Kicks, okay? Where you did like this little stepping thing that I used to love. And, you know, I had a high school band and of course we covered all of your stuff and kicks was one of those things that we covered. Well, there's nothing better you ain't tried to fill the emptiness inside. When you come back down, girl, still ain't feeling right. Don't it seem like kicks just keep getting harder to find and all your kicks ain't before you find out it's too late, girl, you better get straight. No, but not with kicks. You just need help, girl. Will you think you're gonna find your- so tell us a little bit about kicks as well. Well, first of all, kicks is a great song. Just as a song, and it was a good message. And it was such an odd message for us in the mid-60s, because it was anti-drug song. Yep. And, you know, everybody was doing grass and LSD and went from there, you know. But 
this was an anti-drug song and Paul was all for it because Paul was not a druggie. Paul didn't want anybody in the band to smoke grass or take any drugs. He was really clean. He even, he even made a, a movie, an educational movie for the educational system in Idaho. He paid all the money for it, had it made as an anti-drug movie because he was against drugs. And, uh, you know, he banned us from br bringing any marijuana on the road. Of course, we found our ways. <laughs> you figured out how to violate that rule. Sorry, Paul. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you were a good cat, and you probably helped a lot of kids with that movie. But anyway, it was a unique song for that time period. And you know who Barry Mann is, right? Of course. Who put the bop in the bob shabob shabob? Who put ram right in the ram ram a ding dong? Who was that man? I want to shake his hand. So anyway, he 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 had that as a single, but he also wrote great hits. I think they wrote the song, uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Well, they wrote so many. Hits. Yeah, for the Righteous Brothers. I mean, great, great, great songwriters. And so when we got in the studio and recorded it and had it, uh, he was mixing it down. Drake and I were already practicing the steps because when that when that chorus it kicks, just keep getting hotter to find it. You know, that straight four feel. Yeah, uh, it was just so dynamic. Drake and I worked out most of the choreography in that studio at Columbia Records, and we knew it was going to be a blockbuster. You know, the only song that kept us out of number one was Good Lovin' by the, by the Rascals. The Rascals. Yeah. Another number great one, song. we were number two, and uh, those bums. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No shame in being number two. Not back at that time, anyway. All right. Let's go on to the next one. This is Good Thing, another great song. Seems this world has got you down. You're feeling bad, bad, racial brown. Well, open your eyes, girl. Look at me. Look at I'm gonna me. show you how it ought to be. To We're be. gonna have a good thing. Such a good thing, baby. And when your world don't seem just right. Tell me about this one. Okay. Well, you know, we were just talking about that movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which traces some of the activity of Sharon Tate in the late 60s, right? But, you know, Quentin Tarantino took some liberties with the storyline. I won't say any more about that. But Good Thing was written in the house where Sharon Tate used to live because Terry Melcher, our producer, and Roger Hart, our manager, and Mark Lindsay, our lead singer, they all lived at the Cielo house. It was on Cielo Drive, and you'll see that in the movie, Cielo Drive. But that's where Mark and Terry and Roger lived. Roger eventually moved out and got him his apartment down in Hollywood, close to the Dick Clark office. But it was odd because Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys was making friends with uh, Charlie Manson, and they were hanging out together. And so, Charlie Manson wanted his girl choir to be recorded. And so Dennis says, oh, I know, I know uh, Terry Melcher. He's the best producer. He produces the Raiders and the Birds and sometimes the Beach Boys. We'll get him out there and, and audition you guys. So he, he brings Manson over. But Terry does not like the vibe at all from Charlie Manson, right? He does not like his vibe. 
and he, he, he sends a guitar player out there to listen to him. One of his guitar players he used to use on sessions, Mike DC. Mike DC comes back the next day to Terry and says, stay away from this. Stay away from this, Terry. This guy's satanic. They almost killed me. I actually had to run through the woods to escape for my life. So don't mess with this guy. So Manson kept coming to the house on Cielo because he knew where I was because Dennis had brought him there. Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys, right? So uh, Terry Melcher got spooked and so did Mark and they moved out of the house and 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 uh, subleased it to Roman, is it Roman Polanski and Roman Sharon Polanski. Tate, yeah. right? And a few other people lived there. It was a beautiful house in the, in the hills isolated secluded great place so we did a lot of photo sessions there but anyway we wrote a song at the piano right there in the living room of cielo drive where terry was living and uh he said let's write a song because we were there having a little casual afternoon smoking a little weed you know and and um he started playing uh, someone said something good thing. He said, "Yeah, it's a great title. Let's use that. Good thing." So we all started submitting words, lyrics. And then he got some chords, and I suggested a few chord changes because musically I was trained already in chord progressions because I had studied music at the University of Colorado before I joined the Raiders. So I, every time I'd give him an idea for chords uh, structure, he said, "Oh yeah, man, I like that," and he liked the suspension chord. We're going to have a good thing, such a good thing, baby. You know, the uh, the G over an F bass, you know, it was it was a, kind of a suspension chord. And he loved it, you know, and that stuck for the chorus. And so we finally had our song, Good Thing. And um, we went to the studio the next day and recorded it. You're saying that that song was written in that house where... Polanski was and where ultimately the the Manson family went yeah before Sharon Tate moved in because the, the Raiders were still living there what an infamous place huh we wrote that song recorded it the next day at the studio one of the greatest sessions uh, I just loved that session and it was kind of odd because uh some of the vocal harmonies were very very uh reminiscent of the Beach Boys and I was telling Terry I said man we're starting to sound a lot like Beach Boys here. Shouldn't we like make it a little edgier? No, no, these harmonies will work. And he had a good instinct. So we went with it and uh, listened to all those vocal harmonies. Oh, yeah, it was a very nice song. The, the vocal harmonies were great. It was a great hit. I mean, it was one of those big hits that you guys had. We've been talking here with Phil Fang Volk, formerly of the Raiders, the Paul Revere and the Raiders, of course. Phil, it's been. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show and uh, to hear all about the experience of being a rocker in the great Northwest of the United States. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. We could go on for another few hours. Sure, you're right, but we don't have that much time. <laughs> we may have to do chapter two of this interview, you know. There we go. Hey, listen, I want to thank everybody for listening. And we're going to listen now to that song that started off the episode. It's the song that I wrote together with Jim Peterick. It's called The Fall of Winter. I want to thank you all for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. So pull your 